here we are. Let me promise you something. I'm not making any friends today. Just telling you, Romans chapter 13, God and government. Um, Here's what I want to lead with. And here's what I would encourage you to do. Alan says this in Conroe. I think it's great. He says, don't get mad, get scripture. Don't get mad, get scripture. You're probably going to get ticked off today. And I'm ready for all the smoke. Bring all the smoke you got, but make sure you have chapter and verse with it. Because if you come to me with these Western ideals that have been ingrained into your head from Fox News or CNN, I'm going to shred you pretty quick right here, okay? So bring chapter and verse and all the smoke that you want, because I'm, I'm ready for it today. Are you ready for God and government? <laughs> there we go. A little, little more house light would be fine, too, for me. I'm, uh, I want to see, I want to see the scowls. I want to see the frustration in the room. Romans 13, 1 through 2. Everyone. Everyone. <laughs> You're already not there. Everyone. Everyone. You know what that means in the Greek? Everyone. It does. It does. It sure does. Everyone. That is everybody in this room. Everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So to say that someone is in governmental authority now that hasn't been placed there by God is to challenge Romans chapter 13, 1 and 2. God can place great people in government. God can place bad people in government. He's done it throughout the history of scripture. So let, let's keep going. Everyone's been placed there by God. So anyone, we have everyone and we have anyone. Guess what that also means? Any of you. Any of you. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they will be punished. Okay, January 6th, 2021, two days, three days after that, I wrote a letter to our church in the form of a PDF and an email that I was going to send out and just never did. I thought, hmm, we're not there as a church. It's not the right time as a church to send this out. I'm gonna hold on to this, and here we are, Almost to the date, two years later, the Lord reminds me this past week, remember that letter that you wrote? Uh, what better way to start God and government than to read you that letter? So here is the letter I wrote two years ago to our church. I can remember when a church I was tending was hosting a July 4th celebration packed with inflatables, face painting, and of course, a fireworks display that could be seen from neighboring cities. Prior to the fireworks, the song America the Beautiful was played over speakers to the eager crowd awaiting the colorful display of repeated explosions. As the chorus, America, America, God shed his grace on thee, began to play, I remember seeing a man stand up from his lawn chair, throw both his hands in the air as if it was a worship song, close his eyes, posture his face to the sky like he was worshiping on a Sunday morning, but I knew this man, 
and I knew he never worshiped like this on Sunday mornings. Yet something in this song has sparked a love, an affection, and a worship that not even his own savior could elicit. I remember thinking how wrong that was many years ago and I can see the multiplication of it today. It's as wrong as it's ever been. Christian nationalism is a steep hill many are unintentionally climbing with some cresting the top and falling off the other end. Think January 6th, 2021. Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry define Christian nationalism as a cultural framework that blurs the distinction between Christian identity and American identity. In short form, it's political idolatry dressed up as religious orthodoxy. It's using Christianity as a tool to further a political agenda, and that's idolatry. I remember seeing a political yard sign that said, make faith great again, vote Trump, as if a political leader had the power to revive the Christian faith. Christian nationalism puts the ideals of a Christian nation before or in opposition of the agenda of the church and the calling of Christ to the church. I am not saying political engagement or protesting is wrong, but confusing a political movement with the church's mission is wrong. I've had people condemn me for not posting enough in support of racial reconciliation organizations, and I've had people condemn me for not telling people to vote for Trump. Both expressed their agendas as the primary mission or responsibility of the church, and both were wrong. I'm not saying elections are not important. I am saying, as Chuck Colson did, the kingdom of God doesn't arrive on Air Force One. I'm not saying it's wrong to be patriotic. I love America. My grandfather served this country. But we do need to understand the difference in pledging allegiance to our country and pledging allegiance to Jesus. I'm not saying that the issues of morality involved in elections are unimportant. They're critically important. But we need to be careful not to be sinful and idolatrous as we address them. Making the political issues more important than loving God, loving our neighbor, and sharing the gospel is by very definition Christian nationalism, which is idolatry. In other words, if you're pro-choice, you're not my enemy, you're my mission. If your ideas about sexuality and gender include a long list of multiple pronouns, you're not my enemy. You're my mission. You're who I'm called to love. You're who I'm called to minister to. You're who I'm called to care for. You're who I'm called to be the love of Christ and the blanket of his covering to. You're not, they're, they're not our enemy, whatever they may be to you. Christian nationalism reveals itself in statements like this. I don't know how you can be a Christian and vote that way. There are followers of Jesus in our church that vote Republican. There are followers of Jesus in our church that vote Democrat. The primary danger of Christian nationalism is believing only one of those is possible. It's a complete disregard for evangelism and an embrace of faith by way of political party. Having fun yet? So where do we go? Where do we go? 
We must understand God's reign and ruler in the form of a kingdom. Jesus ushered that kingdom to earth. In Mark chapter one, Jesus declared as much, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We are at a tremendous disadvantage when it comes to understanding a kingdom because we have only known a democracy. In a democracy, you vote on the things you agree with and reject a candidate on the areas of disagreement. In a kingdom, you don't have a choice. What the king says goes. When we declare Jesus is Lord, we are declaring allegiance to his kingdom, not our vote of what we do and don't want from him. Jesus is Lord was the most political statement of his day. It was declared in the face of Caesar, whose jealousy of their allegiance led to the crucifixion of Jesus. The title given him was King of the Jews, mocking his political prowess. Though the statement, Jesus is Lord, was political, it was never partisan. Jesus didn't belong to a party, Republican or Democrat, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor. He was part of his own kingdom. My suggestion for us today is to embrace that third way. My only allegiance is to the kingdom of God. I will participate in political practice, but I won't succumb to political idolatry. I will vote biblical values and the candidates that represent them, but I won't let policy, party, or a person divide me from the primary calling I have to love God, love my neighbor, and share the gospel with all of God's children. Jesus is Lord, politicians are not. My allegiance is to his kingdom, not to a political party. May his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Better than I thought. Better than I thought. Uh, my son, Kanan, competed all day long in a jiu-jitsu tournament last, yesterday. And uh, it, was, it was really cool. Guys, you got the picture? I mean, this kid, this is second tournament, second gold medal. He, he won his no-gi bracket. He had some really, really good matches that he competed in. And so he wins his first bracket. He wins gold medal in gi, and we're celebrating, and I'm excited. And it is easy to get sucked into that environment, man. You got screaming, crazy parents everywhere, coaches, competitors. Your son steps out on the mat, and it's, it is so exhilarating. Anna and I are there on our knees in the corner and we're cheering his coach is coaching and we're just we're watching him do his thing and then he goes to his no-gi contest and the kid that he beat to win the gold medal he's competing against the no-gi and they're scrambling together and Kanan turns gives up his back kid snatches up a rear naked choke and taps him out and he lost his first no-gi match and there he was and we went from gold medal around the neck to tears down his face as the other kid's hand is getting raised. And so we walk over and we set him down in a chair and I'm telling him, son, you gotta bounce back. You got a three minute break and you got another match coming up for bronze. You've got, you've got to get focused here. And he's crying, he's upset. They call his name, he goes back out there, he starts rolling again, he goes for a shot, they're scrambling, and his own knee, he gets rolled over and his own knee hits him in the mouth, busts open his lip, he's bleeding everywhere, and that was it, the match was over. And we went from the peak of celebration that you can see here to absolutely heartbroken for our son. And I had this coach come over to me, his name's Casey. And he said, hey, he said, you know what the beautiful thing about all this is? And I said, what's that? 
And he said that none of this matters. None of it matters. He said, listen, he's seven years old. These are seven years. And listen, it is easy when you're at the zone in downtown Houston and there is hundreds of competitors and everyone's banging on the mat and screaming and yelling and your son's ripping out an arm bar and he's winning gold medal. And then it's easy to be devastated when you see him do this and it's crying. And he says to me, listen, man, the best thing about this is it doesn't matter. I woke up this morning, my son came, he showed me his lip, he looked at me, he said, Dad, I'm great. And I said, son, yesterday really doesn't matter. You know, there are a lot of things that we get wound up about that don't really matter in the end. There are things that we are obsessed about, that we are checking constantly, that we are listening to nonstop, that in the end, they don't really matter. Here is my goal for God and government. My goal is this, that we all leave here knowing what matters and what doesn't. I'm not saying things aren't important. There are things that are very important, but there's a difference in important and what really matters, right? And my goal here is that we leave here saying we know what really matters. Paul outlines three responsibilities of us as citizens of any country, he outlines what our responsibilities are, and then he gives us two responses in the very end. So let's rip through them. We have responsibility number one is submission and honor. What kind of citizen am I to be in the place where I live? We are to be a people of submission and honor. Romans 13, one through two says, everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they will be punished. Here is why we submit. We submit to governing authorities because we know that in the sovereignty of God, he is always in control. How can we submit when we disagree? We know who's in control. How can, we, how can we submit when we know? Listen to Daniel 4, verse 17. Daniel says this. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar, who slaughtered everyone in his own hometown, who took him as a captive and forced him to live according to their government, who threw him in a lion's did, forbid him to pray, and threw his friends in a fiery furnace. And yet, Daniel is saying, God is still in control. God is still over this government. Listen to William Newell, your savior. This is what he says. Your savior suffered under Pontius Pilate, one of the worst Roman governors Judea ever had, and Paul under Nero, the worst Roman empire, and neither our Lord nor his apostle denied or reviled authority. To suggest the only government we should submit to is one that we agree with is to contradict God. To say, I will only submit if I agree with it, 
is to contradict what God is calling us to, and it's to minimize his sovereignty. There are a lot of Christians that are crying like babies because they're not getting what they want from the government instead of walking around declaring God is still in control. Daniel said, I'm being persecuted. They're forcing me to stop praying. They're throwing my friends in a fiery furnace. They put me in a den of lions, yet God will give a kingdom to whoever he pleases. And God is still in control. Listen, the Babylonian invasion. If God is over every kingdom and every government, and we see that Assyria invades Israel, decimates them, and Babylon rises up to oppress them, what's the case? Oh, no, 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 we're only talking about godly government. No, we're not. Read through First and Second Kings. Every, nearly 75% of the kings were evil. They were evil, oppressing the people, causing problems for the people, and yet, what do we see here? Don't don't let Western ideals cause bad theology. Whether government is good or government is bad, God is in control. Where are we, government is good, some here. Government is bad, some here. Where should we be? God is in control. God is in control. I can submit because God is in control. I will rebel if I feel like I'm losing control. Maybe God gave you a president you don't agree with to reveal to you how little you trust his sovereignty. Maybe God said, I'm gonna give you something that you don't agree with. I'm gonna allow you, I mean, has he not done this to the children of Israel over and over and over and over throughout history? Hey. Here you go. Something you don't agree with. Let's see how much you trust me now. What's more important, to trust God or to trust a political leader? We, my, and the, have you seen, I, I know a couple months ago I made fun of parents who let their kids drive around Elkins Lake and Range Rovers and Cadillacs and everything else, right? You remember that? I mean, who are these people? Their kids got Range Rovers, Cadillacs, Hummers, and they're scooting through the neighborhood, driving through the neighbor's grass, right? Still feel the same way about you. Still feel the same way. <laughs> but did you know this? I didn't know this. Did you know they actually have those now that are built with takeover controls? So like there's, there is a remote control that the parents can hold. And as you're holding it, they can have control. And there's this knob right in the middle. And it's them or you, right? And they're, they're driving around and some wacko can be flying down the road, you know, and your kid's pulling into the drive and they're about to get smashed by a real car. Their Cadillac's about to get smashed by a, a real car, right? And then all of a sudden you can switch that over and boom, you've got takeover control again, right? And you can back that thing up, turn it around. Great driving, buddy, you know, and you, you've got control of the whole thing. Sometimes we act like God doesn't have takeover control. We act like the government is in control and we have, do you really think God looks down at us and he says, oh man, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know what to do. They're out of control and I, I can't get them back. I don't have enough power. He created this place. He crafted you in your mother's womb and you don't think he's in control? You don't think he can do what he pleases? 
You don't think it's exactly what Daniel said, that God is over it and he's in control. That's why we have a responsibility to live in submission and honor. Now the part that you're probably waiting for, responsibility to actions and witness. Our faith doesn't permit us to break the law or to do what we want. Our faith calls us to uphold the law. Romans 13, three through five. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right and they will honor you. Remember, Paul is speaking of a government that has imprisoned him over and over and over again, saying do what is right and they'll do good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for, the, sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear, circle that word if you have it, conscience. That is the Greek word, sunideos. Paul uses it multiple times in Acts and Romans to describe his witness. Paul is saying, I want to be a fruitful witness to these people. I will, I will do whatever it takes and I will resist whatever it takes so that I I may win some. Paul is speaking to witness. So if we read this again, he's saying not only to avoid punishment, why do we submit to government? Our actions, we want to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear witness. How you respond towards government impacts your witness to other people. Now, caveat, like I said, that you've been waiting for. Let's talk about civil disobedience. When is it the Christian's duty to be civilly disobedient towards government? Acts 4, 15 through 20. This is, again, the government is gathering together and they're stopping the worship of God. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. So the government said, get these guys out of here. Let's confer together. We've got to do something about this rising growth in the followership of Jesus. What are we gonna do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. They're coming and they're saying, no more in Jesus' name. No more in Jesus' name. Here's their answer. Verse 18, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at, at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. When the Jewish leaders told Peter to quit preaching Jesus, Acts 5.29, point blank, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Now this is interesting because Peter is saying we must obey God rather than human beings if they're causing me to live in sin or, to, or forcing me to not follow my faith. Yet in, second, or in 1 Peter 2.17, Peter also says, respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. Scripture makes it clear. Here is our call to civil disobedience. So you're like, well, submit to government, be honorable and respectable, or respectful to government. And if the government forbids what God calls for, or if the government calls for something God forbids, civil disobedience is the Christian's route. But how do we do that? How do we express that? 
We express it in honor. We express it in respect. Why? What did Paul say? So that I may have a clear witness. So that I may have a clear witness. So that other people can look at me and though we're on the different side of things, my witness is still pure for, before them. My witness is still clean before them. Here are other examples of civil disobedience in scripture. Daniel 3, 16 through 18. This is ironic. Think back to Daniel. He said, God is over all of government. This was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Exodus 1 verse 17, but because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live. That was when they were being called to kill every child under two years old. It says they, they refused the king's orders because they feared God, but we have to do it with honor. We have to do it with honor. Here's the thing that drives me nuts. I'm usually on the same team as people who are all about civil disobedience for something that the government is forcing them to do that compromises their faith. The problem is they act like morons in the middle of it. They act like absolute morons. Just embarrassing. You want me to show it to you? I'll show it to you. Guys, throw them up there. This is right before, moments before the Capitol was invaded, January 6, 2021. A sign in the center of it that says, Jesus saves. What? Go to the next one. This is as people were pushing against the first line of security at the Capitol, a flag overhead that reads, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. As they are pushing against the authorities trying to keep them from invading the Capitol. Show us the third one. The sign made it further. There's the sign on the steps. First line of security has been breached and Jesus saves is proudly on the steps of the Capitol. Listen. That's not gaining Jesus ground. That's losing ground. That is, that is exactly what Paul is saying we don't do. We disagree with respect. We disagree with honor. We disagree with dignity. Paul is saying submit to them, show honor to them. What does Peter say? Respect everyone, love the family of believers, fear God and respect the king, same king that crucified him upside down. And yet, what does he call us to do? Why? Because it's a witness. Because it's a witness. It's not a witness to have stupid bumper stickers on your car, to be making ridiculous posts on social media, or to be walking around fighting with everybody who doesn't agree with you. If you feel that God has called you to civil disobedience based on your faith and the government is trying to get you to do something that would compromise your faith or forcing you to do something that you're not forbid to do as a part of scripture, disobey with submission, with honor, with dignity. 
Don't post it everywhere. Champion, let me ask you a question. Why can I go to lunch with the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement here in town and have a great lunch with them? Why can I go to Starbucks and have coffee with my gay friends who vote Democrat? Why can I go to lunch at Farmhouse and sit down with an old man that always wears a red cap that says, make America great again? Why can I be friends with a Republican elected state official? Because whether I agree or whether I disagree, I'm not a jerk about it. That's how you maintain witness. That's how you maintain witness. That's it. That's it. Disobey with honor. Disobey with respect. Disobey as a Christian. Imagine that. Your actions and your witness are at stake. It's gotten a lot quieter in here. (laughs) Number three. Jesus, and and this is by way of Paul, Paul quotes Jesus, but we'll land here. Uh, Essentially, the responsibility is to pay taxes, not worship. Pay taxes, not worship. Romans 13, six through seven, Paul says, pay your taxes too for these same reasons. Dang it! Gosh darn it! I was hoping I'd get a get out of jail free card on that one. For government workers need to be paid. They're serving God in what they do. There's a story in scripture of a king who does God's work while he's trying to shut down what God is doing. And, the, and it's, it's a, I think it's a widow and it's a story. I think it's in John chapter two or John chapter four. And he says, even the kings can't, can't overtake what God is trying to do. They're there and they're there doing God's work, whether or not they believe it. Give to everyone what you owe them Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. Let me give you context because this is super interesting. Mark chapter 12, the Pharisees come together with a group of Herod's followers. Herod was the governor of the time. Caesar was the emperor. He was over everything. And they said, hey, this Jesus is a rebel. Let's catch him in rebellion, turn him into Herod, and then let Caesar take care of it, okay? So they go to Jesus and they ask Jesus this question in Mark chapter 12. Should we pay our taxes? And Jesus says, give me a coin. And he takes the coin and he holds it up and he says, whose face is on this coin? And they say, Caesar's face is on this coin. And Mark 12, verse 17, then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Catch this part. And they were amazed at him. They were blown away. They were left without speech. They were completely caught off guard. Why? What did they expect of him? To be a rebel. So don't pay your taxes to this corrupt, ungodly institution. Don't do it. No, he said this very simply. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Here's what's really beautiful about that. Caesar was seen as deity of the day, okay? So Caesar was equal with God. Why did they crucify Jesus? Because his deity was bringing into question Caesar. 
Why did they kill all of the two-year-old babies when Herod was around? Because they didn't want Jesus, the Son of God, to be on earth. It was the government trying to stop it because Caesar was held to a place of deity. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, give them your money, just don't give them your worship. In other words, he was putting a limit on Caesar's authority, not maximizing it. He was restructuring our priorities. This is the same God who says, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Same Jesus who says, if someone sues you, give them your jacket as well. What is he doing? He's restructuring priority. It's Paul saying in Acts 20, verse 35, and the words of Jesus, it is more blessed to give than receive. The problem is some of us love the money we're having to pay in taxes far more than we love the Lord. And we're frustrated and we're annoyed and we're upset and we're allowing, God's saying, give, give it to him, who cares? That's not the mission. The mission is the gospel. The mission is reaching people. The mission is loving culture and seeing lives transformed. He's restructuring priority. Give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. I have a friend who was an older man. He was born and raised. He was a classmate of mine in New Jersey. He had lived in New York for a while. He is Upper East Coast. And this guy, I'm telling you, he, uh, he had, I bet you it was the, the, most prominent private collection of, of memorabilia from the Yankees, the Jets, the Mets, and all of the, the Rangers and everything. He was, he had for, he was like 80 years old. He had been for 50 years, had been collecting memorabilia. And so he invited me into town to go to a Patriots game. He had season tickets to the Patriots. And I remember he asked, he said, do you, do you want to come see my, uh, my basement? And we were like, oh, okay, whatever. And we walked down there. He opens up the doors and this place is a shrine. He has bats that were used by some of the Yankee greats. He has got every ball card that you can imagine. He's got flags. He's got signed posters, signed jerseys, signed hats. And he, he said, look at, look at all of this stuff. He said, I've spent 50 years collecting all of this stuff. He came to the faith later, later on in life. I spent 50 years collecting all of this memorabilia. It's over a million dollars in memorabilia. I'll show you one. He, and so then he, he handed me this. This is a Mickey Mantle card. This card is number nine of 19. He had all 19 of them at the time. This was 15 years ago. Uh, this was worth $50,000, all 19 of them together. I don't know what this card's worth. Don't come at me. I don't know. <laughs> but here, here's the point. He, he handed me that. I was like, no, no way. No way. I can't take that. He said, no, I'm giving all of it away. I said, you're doing what? He said, yeah, I'm giving, giving all of it away. I don't want a dime for any of it. And I said, why? And he said, because this basement has been filled with idols for 50 years. He said, this basement has been filled with idols for 50 years. For 50 years, I cared more about my Mickey Mantle card than I did submission to Jesus. For 50 years, I cared more about an autographed Babe Ruth baseball or a, a poster that was signed by Ted Williams. He said, for 50 years, I had my basement filled with idols. So here you go. And he starts giving them away. That's what Jesus is doing here. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. What are the idols that you're holding on to 
Let him have it. Who cares? It's not the mission. The mission is him. The mission is him. I'm not going to let worldly things cloud me from godly intention of what God wants to do. Okay, here are final two things. So Paul finishes up, right? And he says, okay, you need to submit, you need to show honor in your actions, in your witness, and in your taxes, all right? Show all your submission. Romans 13, eight through 10, he says, owe nothing to anyone except your obligation to love one another. He said the same thing in Romans chapter 12, Andy talked about it last week. Make it your highest goal to love one another. So he's saying our debt to society is love. Our debt to the people outside of these doors is love. The number one thing we should be known for, we should be giving, we should be pushing, we should be promoting, and we should be signing up to be advocates for is love, is loving one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. Skip down Romans 13, 11 through 14. The second thing he says is this is all the more urgent for you know how late it is, time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in the quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourselves with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your desires. So Paul wraps it up and he says, as citizens, fulfill your debt to love people and clothe the world with Jesus. Clothe the world with Jesus. That is our calling. Listen, as I said in the very beginning, let me make it clear. Political practice is important. Political practice is not the primary mission of the church. The mission of the church is to love people and to clothe a culture in the garment of Christ to facilitate transformation. Transformation. 